Shame is not only harmful, but it robs you of so many wonderful experiences. You know, most people, myself included, bury shame. They bury it way in the back. They don't look at it. And if somebody takes a peek at it or if it comes out, it's the end. It's over. Like, I'm a cut and run girl. You see what I'm ashamed of? I'm out of your life or you're out of mine. One of the two. Shame is a complex emotion that can hold us back from reaching our full potential. It can make us feel unworthy, unlovable, and isolated. But what if we could use it as a tool for growth and self-improvement? Meet Laura Cathcart Robbins, an inspiring individual who has faced life's challenges head on. Growing up in a poor household and later battling addiction, Laura managed to find her footing in the dazzling world of Hollywood. Today, she celebrates over 15 years of sobriety and uses her experiences to help others on their journey to recovery. Laura openly discusses her life from her early childhood to her time in the Hollywood spotlight and shares valuable insights for those who may be struggling with similar issues. I'm Bob Wheeler, and this is Money You Should Ask. This podcast, our books, online courses, and newsletter all focus on awakening your money mindset. Our mission is to normalize conversations around personal finance so we can better understand why we do what we do when it comes to money. Bring a little money mindfulness to your life. Follow me on Instagram at Money You Should Ask. Okay, let's get down to the nitty gritty details of Laura's journey. Laura, it's so great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about all the subjects that I think we're going to cover. Yeah. And the <laughs> ones that I don't, I know that you're going to bring them in because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to cover. You know, what I appreciate is you've been very vulnerable. You are putting your life out there. You are sharing stuff that most of us like to keep under wraps. And there is so much freedom, I think, when we can actually own the places where we didn't do so great and just own it. Yeah. And that's what you've done. And so, you know, there's not blame here. There's not, this is my life. Yes. This is what happened. <laughs> As someone who's overcome addiction, what would you give advice to people who are struggling right now, who can't see the path forward? I don't know if I would phrase it as I've overcome addiction. I've been sober since, it'll be 15 years for me this summer, and I've been sober since I set a sobriety date. But I think it's like the tiger sleeping in the back of the cage still, yep. and I don't want to wake it up. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's not gone. I don't struggle with it anymore. Or I just don't struggle with it now. I don't know if that's going to be forever. But I think, you know, the thing that I've heard you talk about, which I really admire, is really just bringing shame out into the open and talking about the things, sharing our experiences that we want to keep secret rather than private. Yeah. You know, the thing that I would die if anybody found out versus the thing that this is just mine and it's just for me and my family. And those things, those secrets really kept me steeped in my addiction. And it was through the telling of my story in an honest, vulnerable way that freed me of the shackles of it. So my advice would be to get your courage up to find someone safe in whom you can confide and let them know what's going on with you. It doesn't have to be everything. You can start small. But to say something that you haven't said to anybody else that you think is the worst thing in the world my thoughts or my addict mind told me that I would be judged and shunned if I reveal these things. And exactly the opposite was true. 
Yeah, I think that's so important for people to hear. It seems counterintuitive. Yes. And I can speak for myself. A lot of the things that I was ashamed to admit, I actually thought it would kill me. Like, not even that I would be judged. Literally, a good portion of my life was, this may be the thing that kills me. And that was daily. Yeah. So I love the title of your book, Stash. But the part that I love is, My Life in Hiding. And I think so many of us have spent our life in hiding. So much fear, so much worry about the judgment or that it's going to kill us. And that the more we can actually own it, expose it a little bit to the sun, that we're actually going to be okay. And it took me a long time to get there. Yeah, I thank you for that. And my life in hiding, that's so important for me because this is an addiction memoir, but it's really what I think it's about is my journey, my departure from my authentic self, you know, which started with those things maybe I was embarrassed by, but then allowed them to steep into shame. So I never shared. And then my journey back toward my authentic self, which is, you know, the warts and all version of Laura, the one who's made really fantastic mistakes along the way and is now able to own them and learn from them. Because that's the thing. And I was thinking about money this morning and I don't always think about money. Mm -hmm. My boyfriend does. <laughs> he's always <laughs> checking the market and he's always telling me trends. And I don't always think about money, which I understand is a privilege. I absolutely understand that's a privilege, but I was thinking about money this morning and thinking about how embarrassed I was that I didn't have a good relationship with it when I was a young adult and how I hid that from everyone, along with everything else I hid. You know, my lack of a high school diploma, the fact that I never went to college, I hid all these things away from people. Those embarrassing things turned into all out full blown shame which had to be hidden. And I love that you put it that way because I really did feel like I would die too. It wasn't just the fear of judgment. That came first. Right. But then if I were judged, I was going to die. And it's scary. So I'm just saying to the listeners out there, it's scary. It's not easy. This is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. It's work. And the payoff is awesome when we get through it. It just doesn't feel like it at the time sometimes. Yeah. Now you grew up mostly raised by your mom, grew up poor. Can you share a little bit about what that was like growing up? Did you feel the lack of, did you notice that you didn't have what other kids had? Like, what was that growing up? And did you make some assumptions or tag on some beliefs? What was that like? My parents got divorced when I was four. Dad went to med school and then moved to Florida. My mom and I moved to Cambridge, Mass. So she was a single mom. For a while, she later remarried and I had a stepfather. But he was not the earner in our family. My mom was. I mean, we were not just welfare poor, which we were. She would shoplift groceries occasionally poor. Yeah. And then I had this really incredible juxtaposition in my life. We always lived in really nice neighborhoods, even if it was a two-bedroom and I had the bedroom and they slept in the living room. Like, we always lived in these beautiful, tree-lined, not a check-cashing place in sight, right. not a liquor store in sight. <laughs> And I went to independent schools. I went to the Cambridge Montessori School on scholarship. That's what it was called then. They didn't say financial aid. I was the only black kid in my school for a while, the only black kid in my class almost the whole time. So I would think looking back that I would go there and think, oh, they live in these beautiful homes, my classmates, and some of them have housekeepers, like things that were just unheard of to me. 
but I really felt like I belonged in that world. <laughs> like, uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't see it as a disparity so much as like, oh, I'm this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be at my friends' houses and their housekeeper's going to bring us up graham crackers and milk while we're watching TV upstairs because this is the life I'm supposed to lead. And it didn't make me sad to go back to my other life. My mother's an artist and everything was always rich and colorful. And definitely my stepfather was my adversary. So there was that. And because of that, I think I was even more social. So I spent more time in these other worlds where I was a very welcome guest than I did in my own world where there was a lot of scarcity. And there was scarcity, but I was always my mother's priority. So the treats that I wanted, I always had whatever I wanted for Christmas or my birthday, the one gift, you know, it wasn't lots of gifts, but the one gift I wanted, I would get. I was in this very posh private school, so I didn't feel the lack when I was a kid. I felt it more when I was a teenager and a young adult. And did you notice that you were the only Black woman, the only person of color? Were there times when you saw that that was held against you? Or was it mostly a fairy tale childhood? Like, hey, I'm in my element. But was there any awareness or the way that your mom might have been treated? I don't remember any kind of aggression or bigotry ever directed toward me or even any microaggressions. And I'm sure there were. I was fetishized, though. Mm. I was Elisa's Black friend who was coming over and Other people were invited when I was at the dinner table to kind of witness this new cultural phenomenon that was happening in their house. So I was regarded, it felt good, like the attention I got. I didn't feel it like that Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. My mom's really light-skinned, long, straight hair. So what she received on the street was different than if she had been dark-skinned and had kinkier hair or looked more traditionally Black. But I was raised by Black people in a Black community. They were activists. They were very politically aware. So this was the talk happening in my house about how we were seen out there. You know, 20 minutes away, little girls who look like me were stepping off buses in Boston and, you know, getting the N-word yelled at them and getting hit with stones. So these were discussions happening, but it felt a world away to me. I didn't have that experience. Yeah, it would seem for me anyway, if I'm with my peers who have experienced that and I haven't, right? I look like them sort of, but I don't. And their experience is completely different. So um, I'd feel like a little bit like an alien. (laughs) Yeah, well, I didn't have those peers. The black folks in Boston, I didn't know any of them. I was just in this little teeny bubble. But like I said, when I became a teenager and a young adult, then things shifted for me. And I was like, oh, wow. Wow. This is not okay, right? Yeah. This is not what I lived in before. And I'm grateful for it because my reality was very stark and harsh so that I had this escape into this other world where things were prettier and softer and smelled good. And the food, oh my goodness, we weren't allowed any white food in my house. My parents were also (laughs) hippies. So everything was brown, like brown rice, (laughs) you know, no mashed potatoes. Like the pasta was whole wheat and oh, I hated it. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when... It would not do well. (laughs) Uh, My friend's home's a haven for that reason as well, because I got to eat American cheese for the first time. They Uh, have white bread, Wonder Bread. You could squish it and it would pop back out. (laughs) Not healthy, but it was the best. (laughs) Oh, the best. And I literally ate it up. 
like whenever I was there, I ate everything I could get my hands on. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> well, then your life took a big turn when you got to L.A. Now you're in the Hollywood spotlight. Eyes are on you. In your mind, what were the expectations versus the reality of it? Because those are two different things, probably. Probably. Yeah. Because I don't have a formal education, my whole life has been spent either learning from the books I love, very solo, which is why I didn't know how to pronounce a lot of words when I became an adult. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's hyperbole. Oh, <laughs> I had no idea. It looks like hyperbole. And there are several other words like that that I can't think of right now. Facade. Yeah. Facade. <laughs> Facade, what? Yes. <laughs> but I learn from books and from watching people. So I'm thrown into a new situation. I'm probably going to hang back and check out how everybody else conducts themselves in this space in order for me to know how I need to conduct myself in that space. And I know that is an asset of mine that I can do that. And I need to be a quick study when I do that, because for me, it needs to look kind of seamless. So I got into this world, like you said, kind of high profile Hollywood world. I'm thrown into the middle of it. I'm at one point dating and then engaged to and then married to someone who runs in those circles and is really well respected in that world. And I look around at his peers and I see that they seem to love you know, planning bridal showers and baby showers and their moms and they love being a mom and they do jewelry shows. And, you know, there's a role expectation for the wives, which was much different than the role expectations for the husbands in this world. Right. And the husbands were the earners, which is not the model I grew up with. Even though my dad's a doctor, I didn't grow up in the same house with him. So what I saw was my mother doing sometimes skilled labor to bring in money right? or, you know, odd jobs to bring in money for our house. So I've always worked. I worked ever since I was 15 years old because I dropped out of school. I had to get a job. And then I've just always worked, sometimes two or three jobs. And there, there was this expectation that I'm not supposed to work. This is what I glean from my surroundings and that I'm supposed to want to have kids right away. And I'm supposed to want to throw these dinner parties and have these outfits and these dresses that I'm supposed to want to wear and enjoy wearing and be a hostess, be a good mama, be, you know, someone who plays tennis on Tuesdays with the girls and goes, you know, there's a girl's night that's kind of like required attendance. And, you know, none of those things were me authentically. I don't even know if being a mom, honestly, was me authentically. I'm <sighs> really incredibly grateful for my children and I'm grateful for my maternal instinct. Again, this is another privilege that I have. Not everybody has it. Not everybody has their kids and falls in love with them. Right. <laughs> you know, sometimes it takes work. Sometimes they never get there. Sometimes there's compassion and caring, but it's not that full tilt in love gaga, which is what I had and have with my two sons. But other than that, that piece of it being a mom, I don't know that I was cut out for any of the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But I played along like I was. And if you trace that back, do you remember like your mom saying, present well? Or was it, oh, my friends have housemaids, uh, present well. Like, can you trace back to that place where now I'm in the Hollywood lights and I've got to present well? I mean, we all have versions and flavors of how am I going to present so that nobody finds out my secrets? Yeah. But I'm just curious for you when you might have started to become aware, even if you couldn't really change it, just that awareness of, I need to show up like this. 
Honestly, I think it started when my stepfather came into my life and the way that I was authentically seemed to rub him the wrong way. And Mm. he was the son of Episcopalian minister, priest, whatever they are, (laughs) clergy. Minister, clergy. Yes, he was the son of an Episcopalian clergyman. And they lived this very, like we, we, I say, because they got married, but we had homes in Cape Cod. There were three sisters that owned homes. They lived this, he didn't, but they lived this very, not just upper class, but there was a culture that went with being black and upper class, there seemed to be another set of rules because we had to be better then. Mm -hmm. So even though I wasn't technically in that family, I spent a lot of time in that family. And the way that I was, which I'm sure that he just saw me as this little wild child when I came into his life, rubbed him the wrong way. So I learned, you know, etiquette according to him, right, from him. And when I stepped out of that lane, my house got violent. So there was an immediate consequence. The violence physically anyway was never directed toward me, but it was directed toward my mother. Mm. And the yelling and the threats were always directed toward me. So it wasn't just like I could gauge this or this. It was like, oh, no, you're going to suffer a direct consequence if you don't present well. Yeah. So I did take that with me out into the world, not thinking I would receive the same consequence consciously. I didn't think that, you know, my friends' families would be violent toward me. But I think it was already grooved in me that that's my third rail. I don't touch that line. You know, I don't step out of it. Wow. And I think when our home where we're supposed to go home and be safe is no longer safe, uh, where do you go? Yeah. There's nowhere to go. When home base is not safe, it gets pretty dangerous. Yeah. Which is why I think looking back, I spent so much time outside of my home. Yeah. And again, when I was living that, it didn't feel like it was coming at a cost to me. Right. It felt like I was a really social kid. I've actually interviewed people from my life when I was looking at writing this book from different phases (laughs) of my life, and they all had the same things to say. You were sweet. You were funny. You were always in a good mood. You always had a quick laugh. You were fun to be around. And I loved having you over. My mom loved having you over. Like, I was genuinely welcomed into all these spaces, and the thought was that I was happy, that I was a happy kid, which I don't think I was pretending. I think that is my default. Yeah. I just think I had to edit that out, edit parts of myself out in order to cope at home. Yeah. And with that piece about being happy, and I agree, some of that stuff, you know, I try to never lose my sense of humor, and I've always had that, even in the midst of the most horrible things. I can find a laugh. Yeah. So I can still find joy in waking up. Now, there have been days that I didn't want to wake up (laughs) and that's different. And I'm wondering for you, when that moment started to come in where, you know, maybe this drug sort of helps me feel a little bit better. And I know you talk about this and I think it's so important to say, you know, drug addiction is not a choice. It is not a choice. In the beginning, it might feel like a choice as it draws you in and seduces you. Do you remember like, oh, this will just help a little bit. Do you remember the journey into the place that then got really dark? Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember it well. And thank you for setting that up with addiction is not a choice. That is really what I believe. But one of the reasons I wrote Stash My Life in Hiding was because I wanted to show people the kind of slow burn that got me into this really desperate place. Yeah. 
And, you know, the medical definition of addiction is anything in which you continue to indulge despite negative consequences. I had so many negative consequences prior to my getting help. Had I stopped earlier thinking like, oh, okay, this is happening again. Maybe this is something I should really look at. Maybe my journey would have been different. And so I write it as a tell-all, but also as a cautionary tale for people. My experience was, and I believe this now, I don't think I knew this at the time, but in the year after my first son was born, I believe that I had postpartum anxiety. I didn't know that term then. I don't know if it really was a term. When I asked my OBGYN about postpartum depression, he said I didn't have it. He didn't do any further diagnosis. And again, I'm presenting well, right? Right. I gave him no other indication during that <laughs> visit other than the question of, do you think I might have postpartum depression? And perhaps I wasn't presenting. Maybe I didn't have depression. So maybe that's why he said no. That's another thing I would do is have people press their medical advisors or their physicians if they have an intuition or an instinct that something's wrong. Keep talking, get a second opinion, bring in somebody with you who can be a witness for your experience. But I did not. So I felt like this is the postpartum anxiety. I felt like I couldn't sleep because even when my kids were asleep, I knew they were going to wake up soon. So my brain would stay alert. Like I just could never rest. Even when it was okay for me to rest, I couldn't rest. And it felt like there was an alarm bell ringing in my head 24-7 and it was loud. Mm -hmm. It was disruptive and I couldn't concentrate and I was short-tempered. I was not the kind of mom that I wanted to be to my kids. And so my regular doctor prescribed Ambien for me to help reset my system to get me sleeping again. And I swear that alarm bell right up until the moment I took that first pill. And then there was silence for the first time in such a long time. And it was blissful and it was gorgeous and silky and warm. And all I wanted to do was stay there. But when I woke up the next morning, I felt refreshed and restored. I felt like I could be the kind of mom that I wanted to be. And I was. So my thinking was, I cannot be a mom without these pills. Right. These pills are the thing that allows me to be the kind of mom my kids deserve. So if I have to take these pills for the rest of my life so that I could show up for my family, that's what I'm going to do. That was the rational thinking that was happening. And I think what happened was that tiger that I talked about in the beginning, sleeping in the back of the cage, raised its head then and said, hmm, this could be something. <laughs> and... <laughs> we might like to do this more. And so, you know, it was very gradual. It was probably, I don't know, maybe two bottles of 30 that first year. And then it was one every night the second year and then one and a half to get to sleep. And then by year four, it was like two to get to sleep and a half in the middle of the night. And then by year six, I was taking 10 a night. I mean, honestly, everything wow. I could get my hands on, I was taking, but I had to ration them out because I didn't have a steady source for them. I was getting them from my existing doctors who couldn't know that I was addicted to it. Yeah. And it feels like it can get tricky there because if you're doing heroin, okay, you're an addict. Yeah. You're doing the dirty drugs. You're an addict. But a doctor prescribed it. Yes. And I've got kids and I've got a good lifestyle. You know, I laugh because my mom was an alcoholic, but mm. she drank wine. If you only drink three or four glasses, 
you know, per hour. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you're going through a gallon or two of wine a day and hiding it in the neighbor's trash, but it's wine. Mm-hmm. So a doctor prescribed this for you, so it can't be addiction. Right. It's a dependency. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I've developed a physical dependency on this, so I need to figure out how to better manage it so that I'm not physically dependent on it. But I needed to figure that out by myself. I was unwilling to let any medical professional in because I know that somewhere in my mind, I knew I was addicted, that this wasn't a physical dependency. It was just a justification that I allowed myself was, I'm just dependent. You know, I minimized and rationalized and justified everything as quickly as I could. My mind did it automatically so that I wouldn't have to wrestle with, do I need to look at putting these down? Yeah. Because I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Well, those are the good times. Yeah. The voices are quiet. I'm going to ask the question, but then I'm going to jump to another piece because I feel like they're related. So when did you start to realize something's got to change? And then I want to bring in the piece because I love this phrase. And of course, I incorrectly credited it. But wherever you go, there you are. Mm, Yes. Right. And to me, it's so important because we carry it with us. Like you don't get to run from it. No. It's there. Here it is. And so when I saw that phrase, I was like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But I feel like they might be tied together. And I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, in recovery, they talk about people pulling geographics trying to get away from the circumstances that cause them to drink and use. And then they find themselves (laughs) in the same place again, doing the same thing with new people in a new place. And they're just like, wherever I go, there I am. I had a medical emergency right at the beginning of the book. And I think anybody that reads the book will read that and think, how could that have not made you look at what you were doing to yourself? How did that not make you stop? Yeah. And it didn't. What made me look at, I can't go on anymore with this, and I have to take some action, was pretty unspectacular. It was the 4th of July. We had a house in Malibu at the time. I live in Los Angeles, and my now ex-husband was out of town on a shoot for a while. So I took my kids out there to watch the fireworks. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to watch the fireworks in Malibu, and I couldn't take them. You know, by the time we got there, I hadn't brought my stash from Studio City because I thought I had enough in my Malibu stash. And it ended up that I did not have enough for me because I was trying to be good, right? I was trying not to take any during the day. I'm driving my kids around, right? right? So I'm not going to take anything before I drive them out to Malibu. And then I was thinking, I'll get through fireworks and then I'll knock myself out while they're asleep, which is what I would normally do. And then we'll spend the day together and then I'll knock myself out again the next night and then we'll go back to the Studio City. And when we got there, I was in full-blown withdrawal. Like I could barely form a sentence. I couldn't even look my kids in the eyes. And I was shaking. Everything hurt. Everything ached. My eyes ached. My head ached. I was sweating. Like my body was detoxing and it was rapid. So I sent them with a neighbor to see the fireworks, told them I had a headache, which was the truth, but not the total sum of the truth. (laughs) Right. And then I found that my stash only had three pills, which at that point was not going to be enough to get me through the night. I fell into this despair and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. I literally fell to the floor and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. The lights are really dim. I'll never forget this. It was like kind of across the bathroom. It was a really large bathroom and it was one of those standing mirrors that kind of tilts on its frame. And I saw myself hit the ground and I saw like the outline of myself and I could see the tears on my face. And the light was picking up the glistening of the tears. 
And I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You've got to go get help. I was getting a divorce. I forgot to mention that. We were in the middle of a divorce. And (laughs) I was like, you're going to lose your kids. You're not going to be able to be in their lives. Or, you know, they're going to have to bury you because you're going to keep taking these lethal doses of pills and washing them down with booze and you're not going to be around. And obviously, neither of those choices were appealing. At that point, my children were my last priority. They were the last things that I could prioritize. I couldn't prioritize any other relationships, but I could prioritize them. And I knew that it was thin, that I wouldn't be able to for much longer. So I was at that crossroads. I couldn't be sober and I couldn't get loaded. So I decided to go get help. Yeah. And that's not always an easy step. And it's not like a forward step where you just run to the other side and it's all done. Yes. (laughs) There's step forward, step back, step forward twice. Like, it's not an easy journey. No, it's not. And I had a really particularly difficult time with it. I've heard people like my boyfriend who I met the hour I checked into treatment. But when he made the decision to go, he was relieved immediately. While he was there, he felt safe for the first time in a long time. I had the opposite experience. I was the opposite of relieved. I was more anxious, more angry, and more sad. I didn't have any relief from those feelings while I was there. But I stayed. You stayed? Yeah. Do you still feel imposter syndrome from time to time? Or do you feel like, you know what, I'm good in my body? I don't know if it's exactly imposter syndrome, but being an author, I wrote a memoir. I don't know if that's all I'm ever going to write, but memoirists usually have like MFAs. There's a literary quality to memoir that is largely absent in mine. Mine is very sensorial, active first person. I wrote it quickly. I wrote it in six months, five days a week, 11 to seven, but it just poured out of me and it's exactly how I remember it. I did stop to double check stuff on the way, but there wasn't much craft involved. I didn't worry about structure at all. I just wrote about those 10 months. So when I'm on panels with other memoirists who take a great deal of time and intentionality with things like structure, there's a lexicon that I'm not familiar with that they all seem to have studied when it comes to this. My book was not well-reviewed by literary magazines. They didn't like it. Because of those things, because it feels more like a commercial read, more like a novel is what I've been told. But the New York Times gave it a really good review. So (laughs) if you're going to read a review. (laughs) That's all we care about. Yeah, read that. Read that one. You just need one. (laughs) Yeah. So when I'm sitting there on these panels, which is all I've been doing since the book launched on March 7th, I do feel a twinge of I don't belong here. But that's not to say that I don't think that my book has a place in the world. And so do I. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I belong on a panel with these women who write in this particular way about these particular things. Mine is so out of the box with when I'm compared to these people who I've been sitting with. So I don't know if it's quite imposter syndrome, but I definitely feel like othered or the only one in the room, but not necessarily in a bad way. Yeah. You've got a boyfriend now. Yes. Doing a lot of great stuff. Do you feel like you can tell him anything And do you, warts and all, you get to be your authentic self? Yes. So I mentioned that I met him in treatment, which is not to say that we were a rehab romance. We were friends. And honestly, he's so much different than any guy I would ever pick out. I did nothing to impress him. Like, I wasn't even aware that this might be somebody that I want to impress. So I've never been anything but my authentic self with him. 
I was not at all checking for any kind of response from him. I was just me. I was sobbing, you know, when he met me for days. So yes, no, I have not hidden things from him. We don't discuss our particular financials with each other, but that's not because I'm hiding it. It's because we've chosen to keep it separate and private. In broad strokes, we know, but we don't discuss the particulars. But that's not hiding. I tell him everything. Every He's my first place. And we're in recovery together. We go to recovery meetings together. We have a recovery meeting in our house for the last 14 years every Saturday, getting ready to have one tomorrow. So this is the relief in my life, is that I don't have to hide. And in fact, my recovery is predicated on the fact that I don't. So it's a very slippery slope for me the moment I become dishonest about anything, and that includes lying by omission, which doesn't mean that I need to tell everybody everything. I can tell you, actually, that's private. So I'd rather not discuss it instead of lying to you right. and saying that it's something else. But that was challenging for me to learn how to do, mm-hmm. to boundary setting. Yeah. <laughs> Healthy boundaries. What? <laughs> right? Yeah. Why? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Boundary setting. Some of us are just not taught that. (laughs) No. And for me, honestly, the feedback I get from people who know me well is how boundaried I am around money. Can I tell you a couple of my money boundaries? Yes. Okay. So I will give anybody that asks me in my life once 20 bucks. You need it for gas. You need it to get gross, whatever it is. You need money. I'm going to give you 20 and I'm never going to think about it again. I don't lend money to anybody it's not good for me. What I found is I take people's inventories once I do. Yes. And <laughs> and I am waiting for that return and it gets in the way of my relationships. Yeah. Not lending the money could also get in the way of my relationships, but I'm willing to take that risk. And this is not to say that I've never lent anybody money. There have been a couple of exceptions to this rule, but I'm sure I'm getting it back. You know, I know I'm getting it back and I think my relationship with this person can take it. My brother, if you're listening, you know, see it. <laughs> <laughs> to be specific. <laughs> to be specific. But people who know me know they're like, don't ask Laura for money. She is not going to give you any. I give you that 20 bucks and that's it. So that's one of my boundaries around money. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's good to be clear about that because we do take inventory. Hmm. I just saw their social media. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that looks new. <laughs> yeah. Their sad story is not aligning with their social media posts. Right? (laughs) Call them out. (laughs) Yes. Actually, I just want to add one more thing. Two of my friends have had medical issues come up, and I've given them money for it. Mm -hmm. I do not expect it back, and that's not lending, though. Yeah. But I have gifted them that money. So. Yeah, and when you can do it from that place of, I'm making this choice, so I'm not going to be attached to future outcomes. Yes. There's no string attached, right? It's just, here it is. Here it is. It's a need. I'm helping fulfill that need. I don't need anything back. Right. Again, a mindset with that. Since you brought up finances, do you look at your money a lot? Do you talk to your money? Do you look at your (laughs) bank accounts? Do you budget? So now I can tell you my advice that I got. (laughs) Okay. When I had a public relations company when I was in my late 20s into my early 30s, and this guy, Ralph Rosner, I just read his obituary because I was writing about him and I wanted to see if he was still alive. And he was just like central casting for an accountant in Hollywood. He was mm-hmm. like the Star of David, the blue velour tracksuit, the comb over. <laughs> he was great. So I had this company that was starting to make money. 
we were on retainer with a lot of studios and labels and I wanted to spend it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He was like, this is what you do. You put that money and he put it in something that was saving me money. I don't remember what exactly it was. I want to say it's an IRA, but it could have been something else. Yeah. We're going to pay your business expenses and then we're going to pay you a small salary and that's what you're going to live on. And I was like, but that's what I live on now. Like I want, I want a bigger place. I want want a nicer car. (laughs) And he's like, no, this is the way we're going to do it. You'll see this will be better for you in the end. And he was so right. And so what I do now is, you know, the money that I have to spend, I divide my money into 12 months, not all of it, right? but like, here are my bills for the next 12 months. So this is what I need to cover every month. This is what I need for spending money. And then that's what I get. My spending money is what I get out from the bank. I get it in cash and I try not to put it on my credit cards. I try really hard. It's harder now because so many places are cashless. Yeah. And so I may have to change my system a little bit, but it may just be a separate account where I put that money in and then use like a debit card that's attached to that money. It's a good idea. Um, <laughs> but yeah. whatever that spending money is, that's it. If I go through it, I don't get more until the next month. So because I come from that scarcity mindset, I don't go through it. Like I'll milk it to the end yeah. because I don't <laughs> want to be without any money. And that has served me really well. Yeah. No, I think that's so awesome. Yes, I have my SAG-AFTRA credit union fund money account, and I sometimes won't spend on it for a long time so it can build up. I love build up. (laughs) And I can get a massage and a vacation. (laughs) It's the best. It is. But I don't check my bank accounts a lot. Like I said, Scott's the one. He watches the money. You know, we're not watching each other's money, but we're watching money overall and like seeing how the market did and that kind of thing. And I have a couple of people on my money team, I guess, who I rely on to check in with if anything's going awry. But usually things are okay as long as I don't go out of those boundaries. Yeah. For me, it's always so important to be conscious and intentional with how I spend my money, how I save my money, what I'm doing with my money, even if it's not always doing what I like, but I'm aware of it. I'm tracking it. Yes. And for the longest time, I think I'm the only one in the room. You know, I'm a CPA. I've got the skills. I know the information, but not following even my own advice because uh, I was the exception to the rule. I'm the only one that these rules don't count. Apply to, yes. That's right. They don't apply to me. They won't work. I was defective or there was good excuses Yeah. for a long time. And the reason that I do this podcast and the reason I have these conversations is I did a lot of stuff wrong. I did a lot of stuff secretly. And I presented really well, Yes, but there was such a gap between truth and story Yes, and letting that go. But I think there's a lot of people out there, and I'm saying this to all the listeners out there who, yeah, I'm the exception to the rule. That's not going to happen for me. I can't get past this. You can. Mm -hmm. We can. Mm Got to have a little bit of determination and a lot of support. Yeah. And willingness to look at reality. Yeah. Look at the warts. Exactly. Well, we are at the Fast Five now, so we're going to shift the energy a little bit. I could talk for another 10 hours on this. This is just, I love it. So we're at the Fast Five. The Fast Five is brought to you by The Money Nerve. If you'd like to test your money nerve, go to testyournerve.com for a free quiz on your relationship with money. So we're just going to have a little bit of fun. And some of it's not so fun, but because I just went, oh, that's not a fun question. (laughs) Did addiction ever have an impact on your finances? It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. My finances were fairly insulated from the way I lived. So 
maybe if I wasn't an addict, I could have started earning better earlier. Like, I don't know, but it's hard to say. But it wasn't the typical impact where bank accounts were drained to feed the addiction. Great. What is your definition of forgiveness? I love the definition that forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past could have been any different. And really, for me, the visual is I just set it down. It's like, if I'm holding something against someone, I'm carrying that burden. And the visual is, I'm just going to set it down. I'm not going to carry this anymore. It's heavy. It's spiky. It's hot. Like, it's difficult. And setting it down, I found that it's an incredible relief, actually, Yeah. to forgive someone when it's appropriate. Yeah, I like that. It sort of makes me think about when you're holding something, I guess it's slightly different, but you can either pass it on or pass it back. Yeah. (laughs) Don't hold it. Yes. Like set it down. That's yours. And if I don't resolve it, then I'm going to pass it on to the next person. And they're going to be like, what are you? Exactly. What's this mess you're throwing at me? So yeah, self-responsibility when we can. Mm -hmm. What is one goal that you are currently working on personally or professionally that it's going to happen. So my publisher and my agent, after Stash came out, both took me to lunch when I was in New York doing a book event and said they wanted me to write a novel next. And that had never occurred to me. I never thought about writing a novel. I'm not a fiction person. So I'm doing it. Awesome. <laughs> Cut to I'm writing a novel and I actually am really enjoying the process. That is so cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll look forward to seeing that book coming out. What is one thing that you would like our audience to take away from this episode, like from your journey? What is something that, hey, folks, in case you missed it, (laughs) let me be explicit. I think that in kind of a melding of both of our stories, shame is not only harmful, but it robs you of so many wonderful experiences. It robs you of so many opportunities. You know, the shirt I'm wearing now says, how free do you want to be? And I love this because it's a reminder of I want to be as free as possible, which means letting go of shame. Yeah. And most people, myself included, bury shame. They bury it way in the back. They don't look at it. And if somebody takes a peek at it or if it comes out, it's the end. It's over. Right. Like I'm a cut and run girl. You see what I'm ashamed of? I'm out of your life or you're out of mine. One of the two. Oh, yeah. So that's an example of an experience, relationships that I robbed myself of because shame robbed me of those experiences. And I let it. Yeah. So I would say if you've heard this episode and even if you don't you know, have addiction or you don't have anybody in your lives that are struggling with addiction, if you have shame, just think about what it's taking away from you. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, this is sort of a follow-up question, sort of that's similar, but can you just name one major reason why it's extremely important to stay true to ourselves and stay our authentic selves? I know shame is folded in there, but is there anything else that you could tie to that? Absolutely. You know, I have this dear friend that says faith isn't jumping from A to B. Faith is just jumping from A, Mm. not knowing where you're going to land. I like that. But for me, when I jumped from A, when I got divorced, when I got sober, the thing I didn't know I was doing was choosing the possibility of happiness. And I know how to endure. Like I endured so much for all of my life and I was prepared to endure for the rest of it. But on the other side of this, for me, there was actual joy and not just fleeting moments of it, but daily joy. I could have missed that, you know? 
to live authentically for me means freedom and joy and hallelujah. Who knew, right? <laughs> At age 58, this would be the most joyous time of my life. That's so awesome. I love that. Laura, we are at the M&M sweet spot, money and motivation piece. Can you give me a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom, something that's worked for you in your journey? Yes. Well, if you want to become a writer for a living, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Write this down, writers. Do something else <laughs> in addition to... I mean, I really do. And again, I'm speaking from this place of privilege, but I really think like my dad's an HIV doctor. He's 83 years old. He just bursts into work every day. He's so excited to work with his patients. It's not about the money. It's about his passion. I sit at my computer every day and write because I love to do it. But I also think there's this idea that you should just do that kind of blindly. And I'm big on taking responsibility for your life. You know, if people are raising children, if they have families and mortgages and car payments, you can't just do what you're passionate about and hope to make money at it. You have to be practical. Keep the passionate thing, you know, keep that passion. And maybe one day that's all you'll need to do. But if you have responsibilities, and don't think it's a failure either. If you have to, you know, do a job, you know, like the odd jobs that my mom did or the jobs that I did, which was really hard running my own company as a woman, like this was hard work. And the payoff was that I got to pay my bills and support my family or support myself. Then my mom got to support us. Now my mom is in her 80s and she's an artist and she's painting and she's getting to pursue her passion full time. And not everybody has to wait. But just to not think it's a failure if you're not pursuing your passion. You can be successful being responsible and keeping that passion alive somehow, some other way. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. And I do try to tell people sometimes a job is just a means to an end. Yes. And even if it is just a means to an end, show up with a little bit of joy and do good work. Yes. Pride of ownership. Right. Just because it's going to bleed through everything you do anyway. So why not take the positive spin, even if you know it's temporary? Yeah. Even if it's not your favorite thing, it's letting you pay your rent. It's feeding you so that you can get to your passion project, so that you can get yes. to the next step. So I love that. I really appreciate that. Laura, you know, this has been such a great conversation. I think one of the things, and even though you didn't name it, it felt like gratitude was a big piece of this. I really hear the gratitude, and I really appreciate the place where even as a kid, you're able to say, I had some privilege. Yeah. And some people say, wait a minute, the only black woman or the only black child, and you're looking at it going, this is where I belong. And <laughs> this recognition of, oh, my goodness, some of my community didn't have what I had. Mm -hmm. And you didn't take yourself out because you didn't have the house made. Yeah. That there's just this place. And it's great that you have this resource to come back to that is actually happy, mm -hmm. that does want the world and your own self to, yeah, let's show up in this way. Yeah. So... I think cultivating gratitude, for some of us, we have to cultivate it, but gratitude and choosing happiness, that is a choice. Yes. We can't choose circumstance, but we can certainly choose, how am I going to respond to this? Mm -hmm. And I love that you have responded with, I'm showing up fully and I'm going to tell my truth. And I don't even like that we expose our story, right? It's that we let it be seen. Yeah. 
there's a difference there. It's like, this is it. Mm -hmm. This is what you get. I'm not hiding it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's all of me. So I really appreciate how you showed up today and how you're showing up in the world. And tell us where people can find you online. I want to hear about your book. You've got a podcast. Yes, I do. The podcast is called The Only One in the Room. We're a little over four years now. I think we have 700 and something episodes Each week, someone comes on and I interview them about either a very unique experience or feeling othered, whatever, or maybe both. Yeah. They're incredible stories. And you'll hear Scott, my boyfriend from rehab, who's still my partner. He's my co-host and my producer. So shout out to him. So that's the only one in the room. Our website is theonlyonepod.com. And on there, you'll find everything about me that includes the book, which is Stash My Life in Hiding, that's Simon & Schuster. You can go on their site and get it. You can get it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I would really strongly suggest that instead of ordering an Amazon, and I love Amazon because it gives me good sales figures, but your local independent bookstores are dying and they need our support. You can order my book through your local independent bookstore and they will send it to you or you can pick it up there. Maybe pick up a couple other books while you're there picking up my book. But just to remember that that's an option and it's an important one you know, banks are closing. I don't want all the bookstores to go away too. Yeah. So anyway, so that's where you can find the only one pod.com. The place I live online is Instagram. It's Laura Cathcart, C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T, Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at Laura Cathcart Robbins. And I respond to all my DMs every week, not the day they come in, but by the end of the week, you'll get a response from me. And I love to hear from you. So yeah, come find me, come check out the book and listen to the podcast. That's awesome. We'll put all that up. You know, there's one thing I was thinking as you were just sharing that, that I meant to bring up earlier, and I just have to name it as well as part of what I really was aware of. No blame. Mm. Like I didn't hear a lot of my ex did this and my parents did this. Like, I think it's so important self-responsibility. And I just really wanted to name oh. I really was aware of how this was your story and not how everybody else did something to you. And so I just feel like that's so important. Thank you. For people to have that awareness. I appreciate that. It is intentional. So yeah. the fact that you're noticing means a lot to me. Thank you. Absolutely. Laura, it's been such a pleasure. And yes. until next time. Yes. Thank you, Bob. Hey there, Money Master. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn some valuable insights around your relationship with money? Our guests shared some of their financial epiphanies. You might've experienced one too. Don't just sit there with that aha moment. Share it with us and the world by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Or leave a comment on one of our socials, at Money You Should Ask. Let's spread the word and help others explore their financial health too. But that's not all. Do you wanna live in abundance and build wealth that can sustain you and your family for generations to come? It only takes one thing, the willingness to change the way you think about your money. It's time to test your money nerve and discover what's been holding you back from financial freedom. Take the free quiz now at themoneynerve.com and begin your journey towards a prosperous future. 